Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in Utah again this week. Utah, the state of many Mormons. I'm like, is it the Beehive State? Is that what we said last time? I think that's what it was, yeah. I was trying to think of it too, so it's just like, the state of many Mormons. (laughs) It's not just the state of Mormons, it's the state of mine. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I got nothing, I got nothing. And the only place I think of when I think of saltwater lakes, because shouldn't lakes all be freshwater? What is going on? I don't know. That's always bothered me. Yeah, I I feel like uh, I always wondered why at the mall you would see like those guys selling the Dead Sea like face masks and stuff. I'm like, why isn't there Salt Lake sea masks? Shop American, guys. Shop American. That would be a good idea. And what was uh, the the theme of uh, last year's pageant? Oh, that was Buy American. (laughs) I don't know where I get this stuff. It's like a gift from God or something. Uh, the deep cut from Drop Dead Gorgeous is always delightful. Oh my god, I love that movie. I haven't seen it in so long. I don't know about you, but I've been getting an uptick in spam text messages so much recently. So have I. I just got one that said solid eggplant all night long. So that's Oh, clearly... you want that, that's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Nailed it. Oh, I sent you that one of that girl that told me about like you know feeding her hungry hole or whatever it was oh yes yes very disturbing very disturbing yeah it's not hungry hungry hippos gals what the fuck (laughs) well let's move on to some um truly what the fuck laws perhaps in in this grand state of utah oh yes please so i know we talked a little bit about like the odd alcohol laws and things like that so i'm not really going to touch on on that so much this week because there's a plethora of other weird laws that utah has on the books let's hear them this first law i kind of appreciate so thank you utah uh it is the right of hotel innkeepers in the state of utah to charge extra fees for individuals whose children seem excessively busy during check-ins. Okay. I can get behind that. Yeah. So if you have unruly children in a hotel, uh, parents are required to pay a $500 deposit. uh, And they have to also promise in writing that they will own up to any damage, cost, or taxes incurred by a minor at a lodging establishment or to any damage or costs associated with furnishings. So if your kid's jumping on the bed and they break it, you're on the hook for it. Exactly. I mean, like, they do that with pets. Yeah. So why not do it with kids? Kids are pretty much just like pets that you can't legally get rid of. (laughs) Until they're 18. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, and I feel like that should be, like, basically pretty standard, right? Like, you break something, you pay for it, but I guess people are crazy. Yeah. Um, Speaking of pets, Eden, there is a law... On the books in Utah, that pet owners must promptly bury their deceased pets. They have to do it properly, but have 48 hours to accomplish it. Uh, This includes burying your pet in your backyard if you own the property. If you don't own the property, you must take it to a pet cemetery. The law also recommends that you should bury your Dearly beloved deceased companion, at least three feet underground. Weird. Okay. I've never seen any laws like I that. I know, before. I know. I guess, like, you know, they're big on a family, including the family pet, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, 
speaking of other kind of odd animal laws, I just want you to know, Eden, that if you're hoping to get a little elephant hunting done while we're in Utah, you cannot because it's illegal. But there aren't any, well, there shouldn't be any elephants in well, America at all that I know of. But why? That's a great question. But apparently the Utah legislature felt that they needed to pass this law to make sure that everyone knew it was illegal to hunt elephants in the great state of Utah. Aren't they only in like Africa and like India? I suppose. I suppose. But you never know. Well, I mean, I guess that's true. Uh, in addition to the outlaw of elephant hunting, hunting whales is also illegal in the state of Utah and has been since 1970. Okay. Are there whales in Utah? Uh, it's unlikely that if there are whales in nature in Utah, which would mean they are probably in the Great Salt Lake, they probably would uh, not survive because the salinity is a little bit higher than the ocean where whales are known to survive. So yeah. mostly the law was put into place in the books to promote conservation efforts and raise awareness. Oh, well, that's good at least. They're like, don't kill elephants if you that. have the chance. And whales, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of other laws that are probably good to have in the books... This law is kind of unique. Utah is actually one of the few states in the U.S. where it is illegal for cousins to marry. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get married and live in Utah, you should really think about marrying outside of your own family. I mean, I think that's a good rule for anywhere you live. However, if you have your heart set on marrying your cousin, you may do so in some select instances, such as when both parties are 65 years or older or at least 55 years old, and they have proven to a local district court that neither party can reproduce. Okay, so they just don't want the kids coming out with webbed feet, which I don't think is even a real thing. Exactly. This law is expressly on the books to prevent the birth defects that arise when close blood relatives have children together. Never mind the fact that due to some early settlers, multiple marriages, a lot of people in Utah are related to each other. I would imagine so, yeah. I mean, then you still have the fundamentalist LDS people, which they still do the polygamy Oh, oh yeah. So, like, I guess the genetically, when you get to about seventh cousins, you are, are no more genetically similar to that person than you are to any other random person in the population. However, I was reading about some early Mormon settlers and some of the men who, who settled uh, Utah as part of that group have upwards of 50 to 60,000 descendants. So good luck out there. Wow. Good luck out there. Yeah. I'm always worried about that because, like, I don't know a whole lot of my family. Like, there's a whole, like, part of my family that I don't know. So I'm always afraid that, like, I'm going to, like, meet someone and, like, really fall for them and then learn that they're, like, my second or third cousin. <sighs> I'm just, I'm terrified of that. And it ha happens that I am very much like Liz Lemon in a lot of ways <laughs> from 30 Rock. I don't want to be like her in that context because there was that episode where she did make out with her. Cousin. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> All right. I think one, maybe two more laws before I dive into my story. This one is actually kind of delightfully weird. It is against the law to modify the weather in Utah without a permit modify mm -hmm, the weather mm -hmm. no tampering with the weather does storm live in utah? <laughs> great question great question no 
But this goes back to the idea of cloud seeding, which supposedly can help increase rain or snow at given times of year, enhance the local water supply. So because this was something that a, a lot of hucksters would use to travel throughout communities in the Western states, especially during droughts, Utah decided to make this a permit required activity. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. I can see where they're coming from. It just sounded real it weird. Does. It does. And then last but not least, it is illegal in certain areas of Utah to sp- speak or bother certain types of workers when they're engaged in their work. This includes city engineers, as well as milkmen. If okay. any communication is needed from these workers, they can initiate it, but not you. Whoa. Okay, that's a little weird. And I mean, I might understand, like, you know, the, what were that? Was it civil mm-hmm. engineer? A city, a, yeah, it? city engineer, yeah. Yeah. City engineer. Okay, yeah, I understand that portion of it. But milkmen, it's not like they're doing something like that's potentially dangerous. I mean, unless, you know, delivering milk is different nowadays. I don't know. But, I mean, that just seems I mean, they love weird. their milk in Utah, so you, you do not mess with the milkman. Are they going to wear one of those hoodies from, like, the um, the Masked Singer that says, don't talk to me? Or I hope so. I hope so. I kind of want one of those hoodies. <laughs> Mental note for your next Christmas gift. Exactly. Well, those are, are the weird laws in Utah. There are tons of other ones. Um, feel free to Google it and enjoy the hours you can spend kind of reading through all, all the unique and interesting laws that the, that the Beehive State has to offer. But that's just a smattering of them. That was very interesting. Very weird, and I knew it would be because it's mm-hmm, Utah. Mm-hmm. So speaking of very weird, I do have a story that goes beyond your usual true crime story. And in just the weirdness, uh, I will say. I was researching this. Okay. I was researching this, and I was kind of like, okay, yeah, this is pretty... What? Oh. Oh, man. Those <laughs> yeah, are I feel like you'll enjoy this one, Eden. Good, because I got some weird ones for you today, too. So this will be the episode of Weird. (laughs) All right. So today we are heading to Pleasant Grove, Utah, which is located about 20 miles north of Provo. Pleasant Grove is a small city covering about 9.2 square miles with an approximate population of about 38,000 people. The area now known as Pleasant Grove was settled by Mormon pioneers in 1850 and was originally called Battle Creek due to its proximity to the location of the Battle Creek Massacre. That's why I know the name Battle Creek. Okay. Ah, yes, yes, yes. The Battle Creek Massacre was an 1849 massacre between Mormon settler militia members and members of the Tempangnogos tribe where the tribe members awoke to find their camp surrounded and were either killed or captured when they refused to surrender to the militia. So, good times already. Oh, fun. Obviously, when the city was officially incorporated in 1855, the residents decided they wanted a name that didn't remind them of the bloody killing of innocent people, so they decided to change the name of the city to Pleasant Grove. One, because it sounded more pleasant, and two, it was synonymous with a prominent grove of cottonwood trees that was a visual land marker for their community. I really can't say I blame them much for this name change. Yeah, yeah, I, I see where they're coming from. 
Now, Pleasant Grove is known for its annual Strawberry Days Festival, which started way back in 1922 and is actually Utah's second oldest community harvest festival. The festival's name originated from a time when strawberry farming was a major economic activity in the city. Today, it's held in conjunction with a rodeo that brings competitors and spectators from all around the Western United States. The festival includes, of course, parades, a carnival, pageants, and other activities you would associate with a harvest festival. It's usually held in the third week of June, which corresponds with the end of the typical strawberry harvesting season in this area of Utah. Okay. I like it. I like me some strawberries. I mean, who doesn't? Who does? That's one of my favorite fruits. The city is nestled at the base of Mount Tempangnagos, and the area offers quite a bit of hiking, including a trail that leads to Battle Creek Falls, a perennial waterfall that originates from a spring-fed creek and flows most during the winter snowmelt. The natural beauty that surrounds Pleasant Grove has made it the choice as a filming location for some TV and film production as well. Productions such as Stephen King's The Stand and Gold Digger's Secret of Bear Mountain have filmed there. I believe I sent you the trailer for Bear Mountain, Eden. Okay, that's why it's not a familiar. <laughs> yep. I was like, where do I know that name? That's right. Yes. It was uh, um, My Girl with JTT Hair and Christina Ricci. Yes. And to translate that for you guys, Roadsters, uh, Gold Diggers, Secret of Bear Mountain, please, please look up this trailer. It's so ridiculous. It is this 1995 Universal movie starring Christina Ricci and Anna Klumski about two misfit girls who, inspired by a local legend, attempt to recover a fortune of gold from inside a mountain. I could not believe it was a real thing. I was pretty convinced when I read the description that it was spit out by some 90s nostalgia meme generator. But no, no, this movie actually got made. I mean, I could see why you would think that. And watching the trailer, I felt the same way. I'm like, I vaguely remember this coming out, I think. Or maybe I'm just trying to remember. I don't know. I can't trust my own memories. I'm a little mad I missed it. Little yeah, mad. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, it looks horrible, but I would still like to watch it sometime. 100%. 100%. Uh, overall, Pleasant Grove seems like a nice bedroom community for the larger city of Provo. And it sounds like it would be a great place to raise a family. And that's what appealed to Martin and Michelle McNeil as they looked for a place to raise their large family and live out their picture-perfect life. But Michelle's sudden death raised suspicions that would shatter the picture-perfect veneer that surrounded the McNeil family. Dun-dun-dun. Thank you. I thought I'd do sound effects this week. <laughs> Born Michelle Summers, she grew up in Concord, California, where she played violin, acted, and was a cheerleader and homecoming queen. Michelle was a straight-A student who even traveled to Switzerland as an exchange student as well as an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She was also quite pretty. Her blonde California dream girl appeal helped her secure work as a model, as well as the title of Miss Concord in 1976. Michelle met the charming Martin McNeil at an event for single young Mormons. Martin had recently served two years in the military before being placed on leave and was on his way to becoming a doctor. He also happened to have a law degree. You completely made that sound like a porno, by the way. Single young Mormons. <laughs> Single young Mormons. 
Michelle was absolutely swept off her feet by Martin and the two eloped together in 1978 when Michelle was only 21 and Martin was a still young 22. They quickly started a family having four children in the next five years. Damn. Okay. Rabbits. Yes, indeed. Michelle loved it. She threw herself into motherhood. The McNeils also adopted four more children, three of which were from orphanages in the Ukraine. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So they had a big family totaling eight kids. Uh, As a stay-at-home mom, Michelle's kids were the center of her world. During this time, Martin grew his medical practice in Pleasant Grove. After several years in private practice, he became the medical director for the Utah State Development Center in American Fork, Utah. He also served as an LDS bishop, which is a lay leader in the congregation. All in all, Martin was well-respected, if not entirely well-liked. One thing that many friends and acquaintances agreed on was that Martin was always sure to inform people that he was not only a doctor, but also a lawyer. Trust me, I'm a doctor. And And a lawyer. (laughs) According to Linda Kulf, Michelle's sister, quote, He walked into a room and sort of took it over, like, look at me, like he was above everybody. I never liked him. He seemed arrogant to me. He seemed all about himself, end quote. That's kind of what I'm getting so far. Yep, yep. And if that isn't insufferable enough, Eden, things only got worse when Martin turned 50 in 2006. Uh Uh-oh. By that time, the McNeil family was living in a gated community in Pleasant Grove. According to one of McNeil's older daughters, Rachel, quote, he started acting very strangely. He became very obsessive about losing weight and his appearance. He'd go to tanning salons, end quote. Midlife crisis. This is what happened to my dad. (laughs) Martin started spending more time away from the family home as well, attending more conferences and traveling regularly. Michelle began to suspect that her husband of almost 30 years was having an affair. When she confronted Martin about the changes in his behavior and the time he was spending away from the family, he turned the tables on her, suggesting that he was making changes to stay fit and active as they aged, and maybe Michelle should consider making some changes herself. Huh. Ooh, okay. Martin then suggested that Michelle should get a facelift. Wow. She told him she would consider it. Oh my god. That's just like what I was reading about today, which is totally fucked up. Because I I was looking through, like, because I was playing WWE 2K22 again. But mm-hmm. I decided to put, like, everyone back from when I used to watch it. Yeah, yeah. Like, in. So, like, everyone from, like, the Attitude Era and, like, the era right before that. Mm-hmm. Um, And I was like... Wow, did they all have fake boobs? All of the female wrestlers had fake boobs. I'm going to look this up. So I type into Google, why do all female wrestlers have fake boobs? I just feel like it would be like really dangerous for the stunts that they do. Like you could easily just like pop one of those. Yeah, for sure. But then I read the story about one of the Bella twins or Bella sisters or whatever they're called. Because mm-hmm. um, I was looking at the picture. It's like ones that haven't gone through plastic surgery. I'm looking like, are you serious? Because the ones definitely got implants. And then the article went on to say that, you know, the one got them and the other one didn't. But they were asked by, like, Vince McMahon, is it okay if we pay for you to get implants? Like, we'll pay for it, but you need to have boobs. So we're going to pay for you to get implants. And she refused. 
I mean, good for her, but also it's just like, you know, selling the image, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, I think it's just that sex sells, even now that everything's gone PG with the World Wrestling Entertainment, I almost said Federation. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So sex doesn't sell quite as hard anymore because now it's for kids too. Oh, yeah. And you need a little something for the pops. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's gross. (laughs) Exactly. Or maybe it is for little Billy. Who knows? <laughs> Look at those milk machines. Uh, the sexual awakening of America's youth. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of gross as well. So Michelle said that she would think about the facelift and Martin immediately went out and found a plastic surgeon for her. <laughs> oh, that's so rude. Right. And to make matters worse, he insisted that this plastic surgeon... um have this operation and then then pressured Michelle into it. Then just prior to surgery, Martin gave the doctor a list of these post-op medications. He insisted that the doctor prescribe for Michelle. That's not your job. But he's a doctor. He's a doctor. And a lawyer. (laughs) My God. So the things that uh, Martin asked the, the plastic surgeon to prescribe for Michelle are pretty questionable. They include Valium, Ambien, uh, Phenergan, Percocet, and Lortab. Okay, all of those that I know are um, controlled substances. Yes, they are. And they are all ne- uh, depressants on your central nervous system, yeah. and which means you don't mix them. They are like the absolute worst cocktail you can't of drugs. Take those together. <laughs> but he's a doctor and a lawyer, Eden. So he knows best. Not exactly. only does he know what's medically right for you, he also knows legal ways around any liability that he might have. Exactly. Like getting another doctor to prescribe it and not himself. Oh my God. Being a doctor and a lawyer is dangerous. It is. It is. So Michelle caves. Of course she does. And she has the surgery on April 3rd, 2007. According to Alexis Summers, another one of the McNeil's daughters, the surgery was really difficult for their mom. Quote, she looked bad and was in a lot of pain, end quote. After Michelle's first night back home, Martin told Alexis, who had come home from medical school to take care of her mom, to leave and that he would take care of her that night. The next morning, when Alexis returned, she found Michelle was completely out of it and overly sedated. When she asked her dad about it, Martin said that he had given her a little more of the medication than prescribed because Michelle had vomited at one point in the night and he was concerned that she didn't have an accurate dose. Where did he get his degree? I mean, he's probably trying to kill her, but where did he get his degree? (laughs) At that point, Alexis said that she would be managing her mother's medication going forward. After all, she was in med school. It would be good practice. At some point during the week, Alexis stayed with her mom. Michelle, who was still wearing eye patches, said, quote, give me each of the pills so I can feel it with my fingers. So if he tries to give me something else, I'll know what he's giving me, end quote. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. So you have poor Michelle who got her face up because her, her husband wanted it, who can't see anything and is like now also starting to feel paranoid about her medication. That is, oh, my God. I feel so bad for this woman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Over the next few days, under Alexis's care, Michelle appeared to be recovering quite well. But before Alexis returned to medical school, her mother confided a chilling request in her. Quote, 
She started to cry. She said, if anything happens to me, make sure it isn't your dad, end quote. Oh, so many of these. We always come across these stories. Yep. Yep. A week after Michelle returned home from surgery, her husband went to work as normal, picked up their youngest daughter from school, and the two arrived back at the family home. Martin told their daughter to go check on Michelle, and that's when she discovered Michelle's unresponsive body in the bathtub. Martin immediately called 911. According to the dispatcher who handled the call, she had difficulty understanding Martin since he was crying and yelling hysterically into the phone. She tried to convince him to stay on the line until the ambulance arrived, but he refused, yelling, I'm a physician! I have to initiate CPR! And then oh. disconnected the phone call. Oh my. I'm surprised he didn't say he's also a lawyer. He was probably like, I'm a physician, I need to start CPR! And then about to hang up, oh, and a lawyer, okay, bye! <laughs> Alexis recalls talking to her mom that very morning of her death, and Michelle seemed to be doing fine. But later, she received an odd message from her father saying that Alexis needed to call her mother immediately. When she called Michelle, it was Martin who picked up the phone. Quote, he said, your mom, she's in the tub. She's not breathing. I've called an ambulance. And then he hung up. I just started driving to the airport and I was just screaming, just screaming. He killed her. That was my first instinct, end quote. Wait a minute. So who told her to call her mom? Her Martin. He told her to call her mom, but then she calls her mom and he picks up the phone. Yeah. So at some point in the day, he, she received like a phone message from her dad being like, you should call your mom immediately. And then when she finally has time to call her mom, he's already at the house and he answers the phone instead. Oh my God. Okay. I really hate him. I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> when Alexis arrived at home and wanted to count how much of her mother's medication was left, she discovered that her father had already asked someone to flush the remaining pills down the toilet. Of course he did. It's evidence. Exactly. He said it was because it made him sad to look at the medication. Oh, boo-hoo. As soon as Alexis heard that, all the questionable actions by her father began to add up, but oh, she had yeah. no solid proof. And to make matters worse, the Pleasant Grove police never even questioned the family. They believed Martin's story that it was all an accident. Wow. Okay. Okay. I mean, why wouldn't he? He's a doctor and a lawyer, and, a lawyer. And, a, and and an LDS bishop. Come on. Oh, of course. Well, that just makes everything okay. <laughs> Police closed the case less than two months after Michelle's death. The police report into Michelle's death was only about two paragraphs, and likewise, the medical examiner ruled that the manner of death was natural due to cardiovascular disease, despite Michelle being a relatively healthy fifty-year-old woman. It's probably because he told her, he told the medical examiner what to write and was like, you can trust me. I'm a doctor and a lawyer and a Mormon. <laughs> and a Mormon bishop. Now, deeply suspicious of her father, Alexis logged into her father's cell phone account and printed out all of his call records looking for clues. Good. I know. I kind of love her so hard, like yeah. her and her other, her other sister who, who comes into the story a little bit later. But like, yeah, she was like, I am a doctor almost, dad. This seems wrong. So Alexis is going through these phone records and she keeps seeing this one number pop up again and again. And she finds out that it belongs to this woman named Gypsy Jillian Willis. Now, this is a woman that Martin had met online several months earlier who he had started an extramarital affair with. Okay, that makes sense. Now, while 
Willis knew that Martin was married and had the, quote, perfect wife, she didn't care, since according to her, she wasn't looking for anything too serious. Now, this didn't stop Willis from attending Michelle's funeral or moving into the McNeil family home within weeks of Michelle's death, because, you know, that's not too serious. Oh, not at all. The two oldest McNeil daughters, Alexis and Rachel, were absolutely incensed. Their father had forbid any of their mother's family from attending the funeral, and then he insisted that Michelle had been buried three days after her death. When Alexis and Rachel offered to step in and take over the care of their younger siblings, Martin insisted that he had already found the perfect nanny, a woman named Gypsy Jillian Willis. That name is just like real crazy. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. When Alexis recognized the name, she and her sister Rachel questioned him. Martin decided to kick them out of the family house and even went so far as to threaten them. According to Alexis, he said, quote, if you fight me, I'm going to get you thrown out of medical school. I'm going to take you down, end quote. Not, wow. not exactly something you say to your, your daughter. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that guy's an asshole. Okay. Yep. Wow. Undeterred, the sisters turned to their mother's family and reached out to several Utah newspapers about their suspicions. But they lacked any hard evidence, so reporters that they spoke with turned down the story. After all, Martin McNeil was a doctor and a lawyer and a bishop in the LDS church. (laughs) You'd need to have very firm evidence before accusing him of any crime. Michelle's family then turned to the local authorities and began pressuring them, even going so far as to contact the governor's office seeking to have the investigation into her death reopened. And finally, all of their pressuring paid off. The Utah County's prosecutor's office had two investigators, Doug Whitney and Jeff Robinson, assigned to reinvestigate the case. They started by digging into Martin McNeil's past. Doug Whitney later told ABC News, quote, If you take a pyramid and you build it with bricks and you pull those foundation bricks out, you find nothing. You have nothing. It crumbles. End quote. And the bricks that Whitney and Robinson were able to pull brought down Martin McNeil's pyramid of lies pretty darn quickly. Well, are you ready? It's not really hard to see what's going on, I would think. But yes, let's hear it. All right. You're going to love this. First, they discovered that Martin had falsified his transcripts from law school. He wasn't a lawyer. I knew it. And had submitted someone else's transcript as his as part of his admissions to medical school. Did he actually pass medical school, though? He did pass medical school, but he only got in because of somebody else. Oh, man. Wow. They found that his military service had ended while he was on leave for mental health reasons. He had claimed to be bipolar or to have an antisocial personality disorder, but... He had been collecting veterans benefits about $3,000 a month for more than three decades after serving less than two years in the military. Holy crap. Wow. Okay. He also apparently had a criminal record. Not surprising. Not surprising at all. I'm a doctor and a lawyer and a Mormon bishop and a criminal. (laughs) When he was in his early 20s, he opened a checking account and wrote fraudulent checks to furnish a home and buy jewelry, including diamond rings and watches, 60 pairs of socks, dozens of pairs of shoes, and a year's supply of chocolate-covered cherries. I have no idea why, 
but I love that that was the shit that I found. He purchased and was charged with fraudulently buying. Wow. Okay. <laughs> this is weird. Martin was convicted of forgery and grand theft and went to jail for 180 days after he married Michelle and was on felony parole when he got into medical school. Oh, my God. Uh, the the McNeil daughters basically said that they felt like their entire family was built on lies after they discovered this information, which I can I can understand because it was yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The investigators also dug deeper into Martin's claim that his marriage to Michelle was a happy one, only to find out that he had had several extramarital affairs and had exhibited signs of mental instability throughout his marriage to Michelle. I knew there was at least one affair, so like I was not like surprised when you said that he was with that gypsy, whatever her weird name is. Gypsy, gyp- gypsy Jillian Willis. Yeah, yeah. Gypsy Jillian Willis. There we go. Yes, uh, but multiple. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah. He doesn't want a doctor, lawyer, bishop, criminal. So, I mean, I mean nobody. Oh, you mean who? Oh, okay, gotcha. No, I'm like nobody wants that. That's hot mess. <laughs> Okay, so this 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 is where I'm like, holy shit! After yet again exclaiming, holy shit, as I'm researching. In 1994, Martin was accused of having a sexual relationship with a patient at BYU Health Center, and when his superiors found out, he threatened suicide. Oh my god! Then in August of 2000, Michelle caught him looking at pornography, and then he threatened to kill himself and Michelle with a butcher knife if she left him. Oh, God, I've known people like that. I've dated people like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, great. In 2005, Martin once again threatened to kill himself when Michelle caught him once again looking at pornography. During the same time period, he was also having an affair with another woman. Then in February of 2007, about two months before her surgery, Michelle confronted Martin repeatedly about her suspicions he was having affair, this time with Gypsy Willis. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like his default of like, I, I fucked up is to threaten suicide and say that I am bipolar, which is pretty fucking shitty. My God, that sounds just like my ex. <laughs> <laughs> when investigators Whitney and Robinson turned their attention to Martin's activities since Michelle's death, they stumbled across some even more disturbing and criminal behavior. First off, the younger siblings that Rachel and Alexis offered to take care of, Martin was trying to get somebody else to adopt them. What? Yep. So his three youngest daughters uh, were still were still minors at the time, and they were the adopted, not biological children. So he was trying to find another family who would take the girls in. I mean, not surprising since he doesn't even seem to really care about the biological children that much. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. He also arranged for the oldest of his adopted daughters, Giselle, who was 16 at the time, to return to the Ukraine for the summer. It was supposed to be a two-month visit where she could reconnect with relatives, but it stretched into almost a year as Martin made no arrangements for her to come back to the U.S. Oh my God, he was just going to leave her there. He was just going to leave her there. What is oh, what is wrong with him? So many yeah. things. but Yeah, it wasn't until Michelle's sister sent her daughter to the ukraine to bring giselle back that she came back to the u.s yeah wow Wow. in the meantime martin and willis stole giselle's identity they had what yeah 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they took a birth certificate, went to court, had a court petition filed to change the birth year on Giselle's birth certificate. And then Gypsy Jillian Willis assumed this new identity, which included a new social security card number, uh, new ID cards, and that new birth certificate. The creepy, creepy thing is that over the course of her using this identity, Martin would sometimes introduce Willis as his wife and other times as his daughter. Ew. Gross. I don't like this at all. Now, a reason that Willis decided to go along with this is because she owed fifty or $60,000 in back taxes. And Martin had assured her that this was the, the only temporary and it was the fastest way to clear this debt. After all, he was a lawyer. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So at the discovery of this identity theft, investigators Whitney and Robinson made the move to arrest Martin McNeil and Gypsy Willis. Both were convicted of identity theft and several other federal charges and sentenced to serve time at separate prisons. Both of them pled guilty to state fraud charges as well. While Martin was incarcerated, investigators continue to look into Michelle's death, convincing the state medical examiner's office to take another look at her toxicology report. It showed what amounted to a toxic cocktail of drugs. What a surprise. No kidding. <laughs> As a result, the manner of death was changed from natural to undetermined, opening the door for prosecutors to pursue criminal charges. As they should. Martin was released from prison in July of 2012 after serving three years for fraud. But then he was arrested for Michelle's murder two months after his release. A whole bunch of craziness came to light during Martin's trial for murder. The plastic surgeon who performed Michelle's facelift took the stand to explain the litany of medications she was prescribed. He said she, he wrote the prescriptions because Martin had asked him to, and he was a physician and said that he would be taking care of his wife. God. The plastic surgeon said he would not have prescribed the medications if Martin had not been a doctor and that it was never his intention when he prescribed these medications that she take all of them together. Okay. I'm sorry, that shouldn't be funny, but it is. I mean, when you're dealing with a doctor, who's also a lawyer. <laughs> and a Mormon bishop, and a criminal, and a crazy person. It all gets so confusing. And an adulterer. Uh, most of McDill's daughters also took the stand and testified about their relationship with their father. So that means um, Rachel and Alexis and also Giselle. Uh, they said how their trust in their father slowly eroded based on his behavior and how they came to believe that he had actually killed their mother. Over the course of his 22-day trial, the jury heard from various witnesses attesting to Martin's behavior, including a woman he had previously had an affair with, who said he had bragged about how he could induce a heart attack but make it look like natural causes. Oh. And we heard from Martin's cellmate, at county jail, who said that Martin had explained that things were going downhill between him and Michelle for quite a while. He didn't want Michelle to get any of their money if they divorced, and she refused to allow him to, to continue to cheat on her. Ugh, indignation. How dare she? He wanted out of the marriage and confirmed that he had given his wife extra pills and placed her in the bathtub on the morning of her on the day of her death. During the course of the trial, Martin, for the most part, remained stoic except for shedding a tear or two during Gypsy Willis's testimony. 
Yeah. Wow. After 11 hours, the jury found him guilty of murder and obstruction of justice. He was sentenced to the maximum penalty of 15 years to life in prison. Good. While Michelle's daughters also believe that Gypsy Willis is somehow involved in their mother's death, prosecutors declined to file charges against her due to the lack of evidence. Willis has stated in interviews, quote, I don't believe Martin murdered Michelle, but we have to respect the jury. I would say to Michelle McNeil's family, I am so sorry for any part I played in anyone's pain, end quote. Oh my God, really? Yep, really? Yep. That, that's, that's how you're going to play it. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. After serving two and a half years in prison, Martin McNeil was found dead at the Utah State Prison on April 9th, 2017, which was roughly about 10 years after Michelle's murder. Officials later confirmed that Martin had taken his own life. Well, I mean, he threatened so many times. And then just the final piece of the story, which I'm kind of like, good for you guys. Alexis, his daughter, who is now a doctor, has changed her name from McNeil because she wants nothing to do with her father and has taken her mother's maiden name, Summers. Good. And all of the children decided to have their mother's gravestone adjusted and had the references to uh, to Michelle as beloved wife of Martin sandblasted away. Good. Also good. Okay. I yep. like that. It just goes to show you that when your kids are the center of your life and they know they're loved, they love you back. Yeah. Definitely. So, and when yeah. you treat them like an asshole. Uh, <laughs> they're going to come for you. And blast your name off a gravestone. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's the sad fucked up tale of of uh, Michelle McNeil and her shitty husband Martin. That was absolutely crazy. So mm-hmm. that works for my stories as well. So yeah, they're not yeah. quite as crazy as that, but they're still crazy. Um, that was nuts, and thank you for all that amazing research because just wow. Yeah, she is yeah, it's... my new least favorite person. Right. And it's crazy to me that like he got away with it just because he was a man who had this who had prestigious career. It was like, you know, that that perfect family face to the world. And it's just like really rocked the uh, Pleasant Grove community because you think about it's less than 40,000 residents. Everybody probably knew the McNeils. And it's just to find out that someone like that's like a horrible monster is, is very shocking. I mean, but how? Because he's he's a doctor and a lawyer. I don't understand. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I found that, like, someone talking about he would always say he was a doctor and a lawyer. That is just like, so horrible. <laughs> such an insufferable bastard. Yeah, he sounds really terrible. Uh, my sources for this story were Wikipedia, uh, ABC News, uh, a Dateline episode, wildabouttrial.com, uh, an article from thedeseret.com as well. Well, thank you, Nicole. I very much enjoyed your story. And now I guess we will take a short break and we will be back with the news and my story. And we're back. Hello. And I have a weird news story that I found by, I think, Google just showing me things before I Google search. So I forget that I need to Google search something because I just get wrapped up in articles. But I liked the title of this one. So we're going to try it out. Okay, I'm here for that. Um, comes from CNN. 
and the headline is Tennessee Secretary of State Trey Hargett arrested for DUI after leaving Bonnaroo Festival. <laughs> okay. Just like, what? Because, like, you don't think of, like, Secretary of State's, like, you know, going to Bonnaroo? I mean, I guess Bonnaroo's for everyone, though, right? Bonnaroo is in your heart. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the article goes on to say, Tennessee Secretary of State Trey Hargett was arrested for driving under the influence on Friday night after leaving the Bonnaroo Music and Arts Festival in Manchester, Tennessee. On Friday night after leaving the Bonnaroo Music Festival, I was stopped by the Tullahoma Police Department and subsequently arrested for DUI. Hargett said in an email statement to CNN, Driving under the influence is a serious matter, and I regret the circumstances that led to my arrest. I respect law enforcement, and I will trust the legal process as we move forward. Hargett, 53, was first elected to serve as a Secretary of State by the Tennessee General Assembly in, 20, in 2009 and has been re-elected in 2013, 2017, and 2021. J. Cole, The Chicks, and Illenium were among the acts to perform at the annual music festival on Friday night. CNN reached out to the Tullahoma Police Department, and they were referred to the Tennessee Highway Patrol. The Director of Communications for the Tennessee Department of Safety and Homeland Security told CNN their department is not involved in the incident and referred CNN back to the Secretary of State's office. And that's the end of the article, apparently. Wow, okay. He gave the most politician answer ever. 100%. To being questioned. It's just like, well, of course, this is a very bad thing. I don't condone it. Do as I say, not as I do. I know. There's like no apology in there whatsoever. It's an acknowledgement no. that like, this thing is not ideal. I'm like, are you kidding me? Terrible. It's kind of like, who was it? I think it was like a basketball player in like, the, I think it was the 90s. It was like where he was supposed to like apologize for something. And instead it was, I never said I was a role model. I know. I just, uh, just the non-apologies are gross. It just, it's so stupid. I mean, things happen, you know, people drive drunk, they get caught, it happens. He didn't, like, kill anybody or anything, so at least that's something. But, you know, also own up and take responsibility and don't just be like, driving drunk's bad, okay? (laughs) Well, anyway, I have a story for you. I'm excited, I'm excited. Or actually, this week I have a few stories. Well, two of them anyway, that I wanted to tell you guys about. And I don't really have an intro for one of them because it is in Salt Lake City. And Nicole and I introed SLC to death in the last episode. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for the first one, it'll rather be, you know, introless, I'm afraid. But I will, however, start by saying I'm doing something I've never done before and bringing you something other than ghosts this week. I've done pretty much all hauntings so far on the show, whereas Nicole has been a little more varied from time to time. So hopefully you'll all enjoy something fresh and super weird for my first tale. Which I will actually start with a question. Nicole, tell us what an epitaph is. An epitaph. Oh man, a word quiz. Uh, An epitaph is what you put on like a gravestone, right? Correct. Okay, cool, cool. It's an inscription on a grave of a loved one, well, usually a loved one, 
Uh, I'm sure there's been some crazy ones out there, but I doubt anything will match the weird, sinister epitaph I'm going to talk about today. Most of the times it's things like, you know, loving mother, father, sibling, dear friend, beloved spouse, things like that. Well, this marker I found says Lily E. Gray, June 6, 1881 to November 14, 1958, victim of the Beast 666. Whoa, what? What the fuck, right? Yeah. Yeah, not something you see every day. This struck me as being so weird, and I needed to immediately know everything about this. Yeah, so we'll start with a little about her life. And this first part is weird, but it's like everyday weird, not possibly killed by the devil weird. So Lily was actually born June 4th, 1881, not June 6th, in Canada. And the weird thing is that although Gray was her married name, her maiden name was also Gray. How dumb does that have to look in like a newspaper announcement? The Gray Gray Wedding, the grayest event in all of history. <laughs> Just like super weird. Mrs. But Gray, as... formerly Miss Gray. Exactly right. Miss Gray, if you're nasty. So she was one of eight children, along with a twin sister named Ethel. Poor thing. She must have been born 80 years old. Uh, I can't imagine, like, ever calling, like, a baby Ethel. I know. That has to be, like, a name of the moment. Like, yeah. Hazel. Hazel's another one of those. Oh, yeah. I mean, unless you're a celebrity, I think it's, who the hell? One of them has a kid named Hazel. I think it's Julia Roberts. It's like, that's such an, yeah, that's it, Julia Roberts. It's just such an old lady name. And then I just think about witch hazel, too. So I don't know. But I mean, it just I think it's just like with this Ethel thing, it's just a product of the time that they were in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So although she was born in Canada, her family came to America, specifically Michigan, uh, about a month later, according to census records. It was hard to find information on Lily and her family, uh, which even my sources said. So I don't feel so bad. But I found out her twin sister, Ethel, was confined to Traverse City State Hospital in 1898 and remained there until her death in 1917 when she was just 36. It didn't say how she died. Hmm. Um, But my source also mentioned that Traverse City State Hospital is one of the most haunted places in Michigan, which is weird because I don't remember... It coming up in any of my research, like any of my searches that I did for topics. I feel like most hospitals of that time period, though, were sort of hellscapes in and of themselves, given the state of, you know, the healthcare system and mental health, especially. Mental health was horrible. Yes, absolutely. Lily married shortly after the death of her sister, which means at the time she would have been an old spinster, quite frankly, at 36. My God, ancient. I know. Well, ancient for 1917 and not being married. Her first husband's name was Richard C. Walsh. He was he was not exactly young by most people's standards either, being 67. Oh, oh, that's like yeah, still twice her age. Yeah, they're almost one years different. Yeah. Um, they were married for seven years before Richard died in 1925, which is not you know surprising seeing as he's that much older than her. But hey, love is blind and ageless and a doctor and a lawyer. 
<laughs> okay, so maybe not those last two, but I had to say it. Um, for how long she waited to marry initially, she sure as hell didn't wait too long to remarry. Less than a year later, she got hitched again to a guy named Frank Zimmerman, who was 50. So at this point, there was only like a four-year age difference there. He was just four years older than her this time. Okay. She doesn't quite have wrinkle fever anymore. Wrinkle fever. (laughs) She likes them balls old and saggy. Um, They were married for 17 years. And then he died as well, and she moved out to Salt Lake City for reasons no one seems to know. Why she chose Salt Lake, nobody knows. So once in Salt Lake City, she marries Elmer Gray, the man who wrote such loving words on her grave. We don't know a lot about Elmer because apparently he used some aliases over the years and told many stories we aren't sure the truth of. Hmm. We do know he was sent to early 1900s juvie, however, as a child. Uh, he also had a criminal record and lied on his World War I draft registration, putting his last name as De Grey instead, and saying that he was from France for God only knows what reason. De Grey is the greatest. Yeah, right? Like, what is going on? <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> larceny and grand larceny seem to be his crimes of choice as he was in jail for those at least twice. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, shifty. The two were, oh, absolutely. He's beyond shifty. The two were married for six years until Lily passed, and the beautiful, loving words were etched into her tombstone for all eternity. Part of me thinks he just didn't like her much, and I say this because when he died in 1964, he was buried nowhere near her and i believe in another cemetery as well yikes <laughs> yeah i i think maybe it could be a miracle that he didn't maybe murder her exactly yeah so i mean ever since people saw these words on her grave the rumors about them have been flying some of these rumors involve her being murdered of which you know, seems logical which, you know, it may have come from Elmer himself, in fact, this rumor, seeing as when he was trying to get a pardon for one of his many convictions, he wrote in the letter that his parents had, quote, died of grief when kidnappers murdered my wife, end quote. Hmm. Yeah. Kidnappers, wink, wink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the other major rumors surrounding this headstone is that lily was a devout satanist which has Mm. never been substantiated or that she studied with the legendary and super creepy occultist alistair crowley who was also involved in satanism among many other religions and magical practices huh that's a big leap that's a big leap oh yeah none of that has you know been substantiated at all no reason to believe that that is anything to do with her at all So none of this is true in any way. However, seeing as it is clearly documented that Lily died of natural causes, specifically pulmonary embolism. So, I mean, she wasn't murdered, probably wasn't a Satanist. Uh, Researchers believe the real reason Elmer wrote something so strange about his wife comes down to two things. Elmer, who had a long-running battle with the law, as we can see, 
hated the government and specifically Democrats, and this was some kind of weird nonsensical fuck you to them. Okay. Don't ask me how, but in his head it might have been. Sure. The other, and in my opinion, very plausible explanation for this is Elmer was suffering from vivid hallucinations. If you were wondering how, with all the aliases, researchers were even able to, you know, know for sure which one was really Elmer, it's because Elmer had a very distinct and shaky signature due to him suffering from Parkinson's disease, which they found out about with his autopsy. Um, so other than loss of motor function, any idea what another common symptom of the disease is? The only one I know about, and I don't know if it's a symptom of the disease of Parkinson or the medication you get put on for Parkinson's is like a struggle with addiction. Like you get very easily addicted to things. Hmm, I have never heard that one before. I'm going to have to look that up. That, that might be crazy. medication it could related. Be. Could be. But hallucinations is the oh. big other one for Parkinson's, especially okay. if it's like dementia, like Parkinson's related with like Lewy body, like big time with that one. Um, but specifically Parkinson's as well, hallucinations are sometimes involved. Um, so it would not be a far stretch to think that he honestly did believe that kidnappers had murdered his wife and just suddenly, you know, forgot that she died of a pulmonary embolism. So while the world may never really know why Lily's grave says victim of the beast 666, we do have a pretty good idea. Uh, since her death, there's been a lot of people who come to see this weirdness firsthand. And if you want to be one of them, you can find her in Salt Lake City Cemetery. So what do you think about all this, Nicole? Crazy enough for you? Yeah, definitely crazy enough. And I'm so glad that you dug into the research behind what a crazy ass epitaph that is. It's nuts. Like the second I saw this, I was like, I don't even care if there's not enough information. I'm doing the story. <laughs> Just like when I found the devil's tramping ground that time, I was like, mm, yeah, I'm going to cover this no matter how little details out there. I'm going to do something because this is crazy. So my sources for this first story for you guys were film.utah.gov, thedeadhistory.com, roadsideamerica.com, and fox13now.com. And now, my next story takes place somewhere that is not Salt Lake City. But I still can't do much of an intro because finding a town this is in is a little tricky since it is partly in Utah and partly in Idaho. Okay. It's called Bear Lake. And like I said, it is right on the border of those two states. But for the sake of an intro and for some laughs, I want to tell you about the rabbit hole that led me here. So... TikTok, the great modern time waster slash ruiner of plans, because when you watch TikTok, you mindlessly scroll to try to find good videos, which sometimes you find, sometimes you don't. But then you look at the time and six hours have magically passed. It's crazy. <laughs> anyway, I saw a funny video on TikTok about what Mormons believe, and it was talking about how they believe Cain is not only still alive, but actually is Bigfoot. And I know I texted you that once I found that out, Nicole. Yeah, that was kind of crazy, for sure. Yeah, that's freaking nuts. Uh, so this comes from Apostle David Patton in a book written by Mormon prophet Spencer W. Kimball. And claims like this were also made by someone named Horace Rawson, okay. which may have been 
where the first guy I mentioned got the idea. But Mormons do not actually take a strong stance on this publicly either way. And it's sort of become like a weird part of Mormon folklore, like a story to tell your kids, like before bed. Gotcha. Let's talk about Cain, a.k.a. Bigfoot. I mean, so. tell you what, though, in the grand scheme of things, when you think about Cain being like the perpetual wanderer of the earth, I mean, Bigfoot's a good enough thing to, <laughs> to exactly. loop into that Why story, not? too. <laughs> Why not? Um, so when doing that research on this topic for myself, I came across my other story, which Mormons do, in fact, believe is real without a doubt. The Bear Lake Monster. That's right. I'm doing a cryptid because I've only covered one before. Ooh. Yeah, I thought I'd switch it up a bit. So Bear Lake, the monster's home, is a natural freshwater lake. See, there are freshwater lakes in Utah, too, not just a giant <laughs> salt one. Gotta be the weird one. Um, so it's a natural saltwater lake that is around 109 square miles and has actually been called the Caribbean of the Rockies for the turquoise blue water. The coloring is actually due to limestone deposits and light refraction. It was originally called Black Bear Lake, but the name was later shortened. Uh, while doing my research, I came across a bit of information I thought might explain the Bear Lake monster a little better. It seems Bear Lake is home to some unique aquatic species, so I thought maybe that's what this monster was, but no such luck. The unique species that inhabit this lake are all just regular-looking fish with nothing monstrous about them, nor anything similar to the Bear Lake monster. The Bear Lake monster has been described as an 18-inch-long serpent-like creature with legs. Uh, another report said it has, quote, a large undulating body with about 30 feet of exposed surface of a light cream color moving swiftly through the water at a distance of three miles from the point of observation, end quote. Hmm, cream color. You wouldn't think that for, like, a lake monster. You'd think, like, right? a darker green. color. Yeah, yeah, green, black, something along those lines. Other reports vary, saying that it is no less than 40 feet long, but possibly closer to 50 feet in length, and moves at lightning speed. People cannot seem to agree on what its head looks like, and some say it resembles a cow, an otter, a crocodile, or a walrus without tusks in the face <laughs> department. They also say there is a second creature, at least, living in the water with it, and it's just a smaller version of the big creature. I guess it's like Godzuki to Godzilla, if you will. From the drawings I saw of it, most had it looking like a prehistoric crocodile with very sharp teeth and a long tail. Uh, you might be asking why Mormons believe in this creature. Well, after colonization, because there is a Native American portion to this as well, which I will get to in a minute, uh, the first mention of it you come across is from a Mormon pioneer named Joseph C. Rich, somewhere in the mid to late 1800s. It was then seen again by another Mormon pioneer named William Budge, who encountered the creature in 1874 and told the tale to Brigham Young. Three others witnessed the monster as well. They were also told of a creature living in the lake by the local Shoshone people. 
which they called the devil fish and said it had a mouth big enough to swallow a man and had killed grown men bathing in the lake. Damn. They also, yeah. Yeah, they also said it was known to snatch children playing on the shore, but they believe the creature was no longer there and hadn't been since, quote, the buffalo left the valley, end quote. So, I mean, that's one serious fucking monster with a huge mouth. Yeah, that sounds terrifying. I would be terrified if I moved someplace and, and everyone who'd lived there for many years before him was like, you know what? Don't go swimming yeah. in that lake. <laughs> exactly. Like what I'm thinking to myself is like, now, how on earth did a nasty ass Nile crocodile get to America in this freaking lake? Because that's what I'm imagining. Because crocodiles can be pretty big. Mm-hmm. They are aggressive. Um. We're actually marked like on their their food list pretty much of what they will willingly eat and see as prey rather than predator. So I think it could be like a it doesn't you have a lot of like prehistoric like fossils and stuff like maybe it's a holdover. It's it's possible. It could be. It looks very like much like a dinosaur from what I saw. Like not like your typical like you know Stegosaurus dinosaur or whatever the little foot was. I forget what they're <laughs> called. Brachiosaurus. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's Brachiosaurus. You're the dinosaur person, Nicole. You should know all this. Um, but it definitely looks like um the kind of dinosaurs that you would see in the water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely like a precursor to a crocodile. Um, but I haven't gotten like an actual like human, like not human photo, human taken photo, I should say, like real photo of it. It's all been drawings mostly. Okay. So, um, but yeah, in, uh, 1881, it was also seen by an apostle of the LDS church named George Q. Cannon. And here's where we go down a wacky Mormon adventure that I loved reading about. (laughs) The LDS Church comes up with a plan and in 1876 or so decided they were going to catch this creature. Brigham Young gave a man by the name of Phineas W. Cook a 300-foot long rope connected to a buoy which was also connected to a mutton-baited barbed hook on a 20-foot cable. And this is how they planned on catching that monster. When Young later asked Cook what happened, Cook replied, quote, I spent my time faithfully during the season, but did not succeed, end quote. Hmm. Basically, I didn't get any bites. <laughs> yeah, right? So. <laughs> Yeah, there's a problem with this entire story, however, since one of the men who had seen this creature and written about it, Joseph C. Rich, stated 26 years later that it was, quote, a wonderful first-class lie, end quote. Oh, no. Yeah, this also poses a problem in general for Mormons, since they say that their prophets never lie and that everything they say, as far as I've heard and read in my research, is considered true. Hmm. So that poses a big problem when he's outright admitting to lying 26 years previously, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless of whether or not they saw anything back then, it hasn't stopped other modern-day residents and tourists from reporting their own sightings of the Bear Lake monster, which is the weird part. 
There was a newspaper article in 1907 which said the monster had attacked a campsite of two men and killed their horse. In 1937, a four-year-old boy said he saw it. And a decade after that, in 1946, a Boy Scout leader also mentioned seeing the monster. Okay. The most recent claim I found was in 2002, and it was from a local business owner. So who knows, maybe he was just trying to drum up business as the monster has become a point of pride for locals. They even had a boat called the Bear Lake Monster, which sailed around the lake and was made to resemble the monster, but kind of looked more like a cartoon dragon than anything else. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, that's not confusing at all. Yeah. Like, no, 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 we totally have a monster in this lake. Oh, no, that's not the monster. That's our boat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I saw the monster, you guys. But there are people on its back. Um, so, yeah, it just it kind of looked like a weird cartoon dragon. And, uh, you know, when you're on this said tour of the lake, they would tell the tale. They would retell everything about the Bear Lake monster. So it means that I want to go, but I don't think they're actually having this anymore, unfortunately. Mm, that's a bummer. Regardless of whether the creature ever existed, it still made its way into the area's folklore and into the hearts of many. So what do you think, Nicole? You want to visit a lake monster? I mean, this is an interesting lake monster for sure. And I think, you know, you know me, I support any kind of water cryptic because I just love the water. Any excuse, any excuse to get out there, Eden. <laughs> Even if it kills me. Even if it kills me, literally. Uh, no, I think it'd be cool. Uh, it It sounds like it definitely has some contentiously fishy origins but i mean what cryptid yeah. doesn't these days exactly it's like par for the course and i mean like you know it's been the funny thing about them lying about it is that people after them have still seen it and people before them saw it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so maybe they were lying about it but maybe there is something out there exactly yeah and it's very possible that this could just be some sort of prehistoric creature that looks quite monstrous to us today. Because, I mean, have you seen some of the prehistoric crap they find? Like those fossils of those giant, like, underwater scorpions and other bullshit? I mean, dude, I find new bugs in my house and they're horrifying, so I can only imagine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and when the bugs were probably like 10 times the size back then. I know. Yeah, Ugh. no thanks. No thank you. Nope. My sources for this one were Wikipedia, TikTok, kind of, uh, <laughs> Deseret.com, RichCountyUT.org, LostMormonism.com, LDSLiving.com, and MormonThink.com. Well, thanks for that story, Eden. Uh, if you have any interest in any of our previous episodes, you can go ahead and visit our website at Roadside Horror Show at podbean.com, a complete list of all of our episodes, including some of the images from our earlier episodes. You can also email us if you feel like talking. Good, bad, otherwise, we don't care. Just send us a message. Say we suck. I don't care. <laughs> at uh, roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. If you want to find us on the social medias, you can do that too. We are Roadside Horror Show on Facebook and Instagram and Roadside Horror on Twitter. 
We'd also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro music. Until next time, Roadsters, creep on, creeping on. Creepin on.